When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Our episode today is about the most notorious murderer in Los Angeles history. The subject of countless books, movies, theories, lots of intense speculation. The victim is a woman who has gained far more infamy in death than she ever hoped to achieve in Hollywood. Not only was her life taken in the most horrible way possible, and her name and reputation slandered, but her mysterious killer has been almost glorified in American crime mythology. Well, my guest today has put together formidable evidence that makes a stunning argument for who the killer really was, his father. I'm excited to be speaking to Steve Hodell, a private investigator and former Los Angeles homicide detective. He is also a New York Times and international best-selling author. His book, Black Dahlia Avenger was nominated by the Mystery Writers of America as Best Fact True Crime Book. It's a great pleasure to have him with me here today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, good to be with you, Eric. So before we get to the actual Black Dahlia murder, there's a lot more that we need to set up. This is a really complex story. It's not only about solving a murder or even a series of murders, but it's about you and the relationship with your father, who you have proven is the murderer of the Black Dahlia, a.k.a. Elizabeth Short. But I want to ask you, before we get into that, if you wouldn't mind talking about your own life, how you grew up, and how you came to join the LAPD. Sure. Basically born in Los Angeles in uh, 1941. Uh, I had two brothers and a uh, I kind of bounced all around. The first 10 years of my life, we we lived with my father, who was uh, a Dr. George Hill Hodel. He was a uh, prominent physician in in Los Angeles, head of L.A. County Health. And a little bit later, I can go into some heavy biographics on him because he obviously uh, 
to, to understand this whole story, it's important to understand my father and his life. But basically, uh, my mother had been married to the famous film director John Huston, who many of your listeners may be familiar with. He had a lot of uh, the African Queen, Treasure of Sierra Madre, Maltese Falcon, all sorts of uh, classic films. And uh, my mother had been married to John, who had been a friend of my father's as teenagers. And um, uh, she divorced him after about seven years of marriage and married my father. And uh, soon after that, four sons were born to her. Uh, my older brother, Michael, was uh, born in 39. Uh, he grew up to become a, quite a well-known radio announcer with KPFK, a local FM station here, and um, uh, kind of dedicated his life to public service and, and, uh, and the underdogs of life. Then I, I came along in 41. My younger brother, Kelvin, came along in 42. Actually, I was a twin. Uh, John was uh, born, only survived like three weeks. We were premature three-pound babies. So basically grew up in the L.A. Hollywood area, lived in this wonderful kind of Mayan temple mansion in Hollywood. Then my father left uh, for the Phil uh, Actually, he left for Asia suddenly, and uh, uh, there were the three boys uh, and mom, and we kind of bounced around, and I, I talk about this in my book as the gypsy years, bounced around in different areas of Los Angeles, kind of uh, she was struggling uh, to, to take care of three boys. She was an alcoholic, but also a screenwriter. So at 17, I did the... Uh, I decided I wanted to get off on my own and, and join the Navy. And uh, right at 17, got her permission, was in for four years. Got out and thought I, I was a medic, I was a corpsman in the Navy. And, and uh, when I got discharged, I took a job at a Kaiser Hospital here as an orderly, thinking maybe I'd go into medicine. But then uh, the fates decided otherwise, and uh, next thing I knew, I was joining the LAPD. And this would have been in the early 60s, 63. I actually went through the police academy and uh, from there graduated and worked patrol, uniform patrol with LAPD for uh, six years, then went into detectives at Hollywood, worked all the tables there, eventually graduated to, uh, to uh, homicide. And basically I spent my entire rest of my career, the next 17 years, working as a LAPD homicide detective. Uh, out of Hollywood Division, which is like a, you call them precincts. Uh, we had 18 divisions in the city at that time, and that was one of the divisions, Hollywood. Over 300 murder investigations during my career uh, had a exceptionally high solve rate. I was running around 75, 80% solves. So I had a great reputation and um, basically retired from LAPD in, in uh, 1986 after 20, almost 24 years. Became a uh, private investigator, had a couple of sons, and at that point decided to get out of the mean streets of L.A., and my boys were like five and seven, and went north to Bellingham, Washington, and uh, became a P.I., criminal invest uh, defense investigator uh, at that time, and uh, kind of became the only, it was a small town just near the border of uh, Canada in Washington State. And raised my boys there and uh, basically got that 3 a.m. phone call informing me that my father had died. And uh, 
uh, he was at that time he was living in San Francisco in high rise, and I flew down and did all the things that a son has to do to take care of a father's passing, and from there uh, that started me into my investigations. So you get the call, go back to California, and you meet with your father's widow, June. There, you're pretty much assigned the task of going through your father's personal belongings, belongings he had actually asked his wife to destroy after he had died. And one of those things was a small photo book. And one photo in particular inside kind of sets things in motion for you, doesn't it? It does, and uh, maybe it's it would be best to... Uh give your listeners uh, some background on my father. He was, without question, the most remarkable man I've, I've ever known in my life. And um, his background was so varied and so uh, eclectic that uh, you really, to understand what comes next, you really kind of have, have to understand the man himself. And uh, if you like, I can go into detail as to his, uh, his, his background. Absolutely. So let's start with your father. Okay, so uh, George Hodel was uh, born in Los Angeles in 1907. He was an only child, uh, born in downtown L.A. at Fifth and Olive, of all places, uh, Clara Barton Hospital. He was, his, his parents were Russian Jews. My grandfather, George Sr., had, uh, was born in Odessa, and... Uh, my grandmother was also born in Russia, and they they met in Paris at the turn of the century. My my grandfather fled uh, Russia uh, just as he was about to be uh, called into service uh, for the army, and uh, he managed to get out uh, because uh, Jews were treated almost like slaves in the service uh, at that time at the turn of the century, and. Uh, he managed to escape on a train, uh, dressed up, got fancy luggage, and, and uh, said he was visiting his sick grandmother, and got out of the country, went to Paris, where he actually met Esther, my grandmother, who was there as a dentist. Very unusual. You imagine a woman dentist in 1901, <laughs> Paris. Right. Very, very unusual, brilliant woman. Anyway, they uh, fell in love and uh, got married came through Ellis Island uh, about 1902 or three, and um, came out west to Los Angeles. We're, we're in New York for a year or two. Then they came west to L.A., and George was born in 1907. Quickly, uh, at age six or seven, he was identified as being uh, uh, highly gifted. He uh, was a musical prodigy, playing his own piano concerts uh, at the uh, Shrine Auditorium at the age of uh, nine, beating out adult uh, pianists. Highly gifted, musical genius. They then soon discovered that he was also intellectually superior, tested out at 186 IQ, one point above Einstein. Incidentally, that skips a generation, so. <laughs> but but my, my boys are in good shape. Anyway, the um, he went to uh, South Pasadena Junior High, graduated uh, there at the age of 14 and uh, went to Caltech, which was uh, one of our top technical universities here and highly respected in Pasadena. So he enters Caltech at the age of 14, and uh, not only is he intellectually gifted and, and musically a musical prodigy, but he's also um, 
sexually precocious, let's say, uh, has an affair with one of the professor's wives at Caltech uh, when he's 15, and uh, she gets pregnant. <laughs> he's uh, uh, That breaks up her marriage. She goes back east to the east coast and has the child, and uh, George follows her back and says, I want to marry you, I love you, and she says, George, you've ruined my life, you're a kid yourself, you know, go home, you know, get out of my life. So he comes back, and of course Caltech says, you know, because of the scandal, he's he was forced to leave after a year. And he hooks up, and he and he becomes a cab driver in L.A. Uh, in the, we're now into the uh, early 20s, mid-20s. And um, he gets a job. He passes himself off at 17, as 21, gets a chauffeur's license. He's driving yellow cab. And uh, then he gets a job with the one of the top L.A. newspapers, the L.A. Record, which was uh, uh, here in L.A., and, and uh, becomes a crime reporter. <laughs> and uh, he's riding around. This is during Prohibition. He's riding around with the uh, LAPD vice squad. They're kicking doors, and he's going in and taking names and writing these kind of tabloid articles in the newspaper. The judges was seen with a young blonde at a drinking at the bar and stuff. And then he graduates and starts writing around with homicide, LAPD homicide guys, uh, the big boys, and uh, writes, again, these tabloid stories the, on these murders in, the, in 1924-25. Does that for about a year or so. And then he starts double dating uh, with John Huston, who was at that time, of course, not the famous director, but at that time he was just the son of his father, Walter Huston, was a very famous actor, stage and screen, one of the A-list actors of the day. And uh, he was his son. So Dad and he were friends as teenagers, and they were double dating a, a couple of girls, women, young women, teenagers, 18 and 19, and uh, one was named Dorothy, and the other was Emilia. Well, John and Emilia were dating, and George and Dorothy were dating, and then at some point after a number of months, they switched, and John fell in love with Dorothy. They ran off to Greenwich Village and got married at 18, 19, and uh, Emilia and, and George were looking at each other, and I said, I guess it's you and me. She gets pregnant. Uh, and George and Emilia go north to San Francisco, where Dad starts medical school, pre-med at Berkeley, four years there. He then goes across the bay to UCSF, San Francisco, and, to get his MD, and he's going through there, and he gets a job with the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper as a columnist. He, he has a joint co-byline with uh, Emilia, and they're writing these uh, columns, uh, Actually, it's called Abroad in San Francisco, where they're writing about stories about different sections of San Francisco and the different ethnic communities and and cultures and stuff. So he does that. He gets gets through medical school. And while he's uh, in medical school, with all of his other gifts, he also has a natural ability as a surgeon. He has incredible eye-hand coordination. So his professors are vying for him to be their assistant because he's so naturally skilled in, in surgery. Anyway, he graduates in 36. Oh, well, before that, he's actually, uh, the, the ch- a child is born to Emilia, which uh, is Duncan. 
1928. He then has an affair with another woman at the same time, and a second child is born uh, to him by the name of Tamar in 1935. He graduates in 36, so he's got these two small children, and he decides to take off, and he gets a job with the uh, U.S. Health Department, to doctoring to the uh, at a uh, actually at a uh, logging camp as a surgeon. So he does that for a year or so. Then he goes and, and doctors to the Hopi and Navajo Indian reservations in New Mexico and Arizona. Does that for a few years and then comes back to L.A., joins the health department, L.A. health department, quickly rises to the top. Uh, he specializes in VD, venereal disease control, rises to the top and becomes the VD control officer for L.A. County. At this point, Dorothy who had the John Houston's Dorothy uh, had been married to him for seven years. They break up. She comes back, hooks back up with George, and uh, my older brother Michael is born in 39. I come along in 41. And uh, my younger brother Kelly is born in 42. So they get married, uh, and Dad buys a Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. home uh, in Hollywood. It's a, a Mayan temple. It's been used in quite a few of the films, L.A. Confidential and, and uh, Aviator, and, and uh, it's easily recognizable. It's literally a huge stone castle in the heart of Hollywood. Look, looks exactly like a Mayan temple. So Dad is now head of L.A. County Health, VD. Uh, he, has his, uh, he has his children there, and from four, 1945 to 1950, we... We have these incredible, he's having these incredible parties. Uh, the rich and famous are uh, coming, and he's entertaining a lot of the film people and a lot of the politicos of the day. And then at, at, uh, uh, in 1949, there's a knock at the door of, the, this, of our home, and uh, it's LAPD. And they say, Dr. George Odell, and he says, yes. He said, you're under arrest for incest. <laughs> they take him into custody. Well, you recall that Tamar, that was born in 35, she's now 14, and she came down that summer to live with us. And uh, she runs away from home while she's living with us, and the police pick her up, and she, uh, they said, why did you run away from home? And Tamar says, well, because my life is so uh, messed up. And I say, what do you mean? She says, well... And then she reveals uh, that her father had sexual intercourse with her with two or three other adults in the bedroom. So big scandal, newspaper articles, LA, head of L.A. County Health arrested for child molestation, incest. Well, Dad, he's, the case is filed in court, and uh, he's held to answer, and then there's a jury trial. And uh, Dad hires Jerry Geisler who uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with, was the top criminal attorney in the nation at that time. He was kind of a Johnny Cochran of his day. And uh, he hires him. There's a three-week three trial, and they come back, and uh, the jury comes back in about 45 minutes in kind of an O.J. decision, not guilty. With that, uh, Dad, uh, shortly after that, leaves the country, and goes to Asia, well, he actually goes to uh, Hawaii, which was a territory at the time, Gets becomes a psychiatrist, uh, then goes on, remarries, goes on to Asia, 
and uh, uses Manila, Philippines as his home base and gets into market research, kind of reinvents himself as a market research genius, becomes the leading authority in, in all of Asia on market research, which was just kind of born at about that time in the, in the 50s, and uh, has four more children, marries a wealthy Filipina. Actually, she becomes a, a senator and um, has four more children, uh, divorces her after about four years, five years, uh, hooks up with uh, uh, his young, uh, one of his young uh, assistants' uh, secretary, June, a, J- a Japanese woman, who will spend the next 30 years with him. So he travels all over the world doing these market research uh, for a lot of the top airlines and hotels and stuff. And eventually, in 1990, he comes back to uh, San Francisco after 35, 40 years. Although he was coming here every year or every six months or every year for short trips, business trips and stuff, he finally relocates to San Francisco in 1990. And... Uh, I make contact with him. I start seeing him on a regular basis. I'm in Bellingham, Washington. I go down. He comes up. And uh, we develop a very close relationship. At this point in his life, he's got 11 children by five different women. And uh, he's living on the 39th floor of a high-rise in downtown San Francisco. So we see each other for the next decade. I spend uh, uh, quite a bit of time with him back and forth. We become quite close. And uh, then I get that 3 a.m. call uh, from June saying, your father's collapsed, the paramedics are here, they just pronounced him dead. I fly down and uh, start to do what all sons do when the passing of a parent, and, and uh, that pulls me into my investigation. Was it difficult getting close to him, knowing what he did to your sister? Were there ever any conversations about that? Well, you know, the, the, of course, the, the, the uh, story was that, uh, I mean, what he presented to the world and to everybody else, including all of the other extended family, was that it never happened. That was his position. And, that you know, they, they painted, basically his attorney painted Tamar with, as a, as a uh, pathological liar. And, and uh, she was making it all up. It was all fantasy. And I was one of the few, and most family members believed, kind of believed it was maybe made up that, you know, dad didn't do it. Certainly all of the Filipino family believed that. My brother and I both uh, believed that it happened. And um, because, you know, I was, I I considered myself a fair judge of, of people and dad was very eccentric and I knew that he was, you know, obviously, you know, obsessed with sex. And, um, so I, I was in full belief. I, I had no, never had any doubts that he, he did commit it. Um, but um, a lot of others didn't believe it. So it was kind of a mixed bag for Tamar, and she had, and it, of course, impacted her. Even though, you know, the, the amazing thing was there were three adults present in the room during the sex acts, and they testified in court, and yet he beat, he, he beat it. We would later, later discover in my investigation, that there were indications of a payoff. From what you write in your book, the prosecution had an absolute slam dunk. Witnesses galore, actual witnesses who were there in the bedroom testified. But his defense attorney really pulled off a coup. 
Well, he really did. And uh, we also learned that apparently $15,000. And you also got to remember back then in, in, in 49, L.A. was a real-life L.A. confidential. I mean, there was a lot of corruption. All, a lot of the cops, everybody, a lot of the politicals, a lot of in the DA's office, everybody was getting payoffs. So it wasn't all that surprising. And she was, you know, she was this beautiful Marilyn. I mean, you look at pictures of my half-sister Tamar, and she, she looks like a little Marilyn Monroe. I mean, she was ab- absolutely, you know, 14 going on, you know, 25 or whatever. And, and um, so tragically, and, and her life because of that, I mean, because of those, those, those allegations and, and um, that she was labeled and painted with this uh, pathological liar brush, you know, her life kind of spun out of control. And uh, she went to San Francisco and became, you know, one of the original bohemians and, and, and hippies and uh, kind of sex, drugs, rock and roll type thing. So we, I had almost no contact with Tamar, really, for the first 50 years of our life. Uh, I mean, we just didn't. I, I, you know, she went on to Hawaii and, and to have uh, f- four children, four, four, four uh, ch- children and uh all different fathers and stuff. So the only time I really connected with her was after Dad's death, you know, like 40 years. And then we started uh, talking and and, uh, and and comparing notes because she still loved her father, you know. And uh, I had become close. So after Dad's death, in the weeks following that, we started conversations for the first time. And uh, that also contributed. So... Maybe I'll, t- I'll, I'll let your listeners get an idea of what kind of... The, the point is that this investigation came to me. I didn't go to it. Um, oddly enough, I knew very little about the uh, Black Dahlia. I didn't even know the Black Dahlia's name, Elizabeth Short. Uh, I knew it was a famous whodunit from the 40s. But as a, as a young uh, homicide detective, I, I was concerned with the 60s and 70s and 80s, not the, not the past. And uh, there was never any indication that there was any connection or t- to my family or anything while I was on the job. It was only 14 years into, into retirement that I would, I would start to discover things. We will be right back. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Was, or call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. And we have returned. So to bring it around again to that pivotal moment, you're going through your father's things, and you find this little book of photographs, and as you're skimming through the book, you're shocked to find a picture who you later discover to be Elizabeth Short. Right. So so what happened was I go down, and, and uh, June is in, of course, a deep depression. They've been married 30 years. She was Actually, she was suicidal. She was going to take her life. And uh, so I spent, you know, the first... Uh, few days dealing with that and saying, no, you're younger than me, June. You've got a lot to live for, you know, um, and uh, kind of talking her through that. And then we're sitting there one evening, uh, and, and she comes out, and she actually hands me this little book that belonged to my father. And it's like three-by-five-inch book. It was wooden-bound. And it had a bunch of pictures in it, small pictures of uh, my mother, uh, my brothers and I, uh, my grandfather, and I'm leafing through this book and turning the pages, and um, there were photos by Man Ray, who plays an important part in the story, who was a famous surrealist photographer, and he was our, actually our family photographer back in the 40s. And there are pictures by Man Ray of my mother and, and us boys and stuff, and I'm going through, and I look, and I see this photograph of a, a, a dark-haired young woman, semi-reclining, and she was nude, and I turned to June and I said, who is this? 
And she looked at it and she says, I don't know, somebody your father knew from a long time ago. But the face looked familiar. And I think, why do I know this face? Well, it clearly looked like a photo from the 40s. But I, I couldn't pull it in. And then, for some strange reason, Black Dahlia comes to mind. And to this day, I can't say for sure why that why Black Dahlia came to mind. But there was a film in the in the mid seventies, a television movie called Who Is the Black Dahlia, and Lucy Arnaz played the part of uh, Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. And the picture was almost picture perfect to her. It looked just like her. So I'm thinking, well, maybe that was the source of it, because I had seen that movie. But anyway, it just kind of it was a passing thing. But then, um, uh, three or four days later, I'm on the phone with Tamar, who's in Hawaii, and I'm talking to her. And we're talking about Dad and, and reflecting on memories and what a great man he was and all of this. And she comes out of nowhere and says, well, you know he was a, you know he was a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. And I said, what are you talking about, Tamar? And she says, yeah, well, he didn't do it, but he was a suspect back then in the murder. And I said, where is this coming from? She says, well, when I was picked up by LAPD on the runaway uh, and made my disclosure, they told me, and we were going to court back and forth, they told me that, you know, he was a suspect in the murder. And, of course, you know, you think, well, why would this have never come up? Well, I, I don't think I had more than 30 minutes of conversations with Tamar in the previous 50 years. So we had, you know, gone on our separate routes in life and stuff. So anyway, there was that. And then I started looking into it, and I start researching, get online, and start looking at the case itself. And the next thing I discover, so that's the first or second blinking red light. And then I discover that uh, the crime was committed by a surgeon. Well, Dad was a skilled surgeon in his in his early doctoring days, but still, I, it never occurred to me that he might be the suspect. I thought, well, you know, what's the, what's the deal here? Well, then what the, the real turning point was maybe a, a couple of weeks later, my girlfriend, who's living in Los Angeles, I had her send me up stuff from the L.A. newspapers, articles, original articles and stuff from the UCLA library. And she sends me one that's a front page and it's a note. Well, it turns out the, Black De- the killer, uh, Elizabeth Short's killer, the Black Dahlia, started sending in these notes, cut and paste notes like ransom notes and disguised handwriting and, and printings and stuff. Uh, and he sent in maybe a dozen in the two or three weeks following her murder to the press, taunting them, taunting the police, taunting the press, signing it Black Dahlia Avenger. And uh, in one of these notes, he's, uh, which was, there was, most of the handwriting was disguised, but this one, one note wasn't, and it was on the front page of the newspaper, and it said, turning myself in on January 29th, had my fun at the police, signed Black Dahlia Avenger. And I look at the handwriting, and it's my father's handwriting. I mean, no doubt about it. You know your parents' handwriting, your listeners know theirs, and I know my father's. And I still said, well, wait a minute, this can't be. What's the deal here? Is he pretending to be? Does he know the killer? What's going on here? And at that point, I said, you know, I, I need to follow this up. So at that point I, I basically decided to relocate back to L.A. And, and do a full bore, realizing I couldn't do an absentee investigation from Bellingham, Washington. And I'd been divorced and stuff, and my boys were off to school and college and, and uh, out of high school. 
So I relocated back to L.A. in uh, 2000 and, and began my investigation. would spend the next three years, two and a half, three years, putting it all together, interviewing people, and eventually I, I went to the L.A. Uh, in secret, I went to the DA's office to a uh, district head DA by the name of Steve Kay, who was one of the top. He was like the number three man in the DA's office. He had uh, he, he he was probably the, the best prosecutor that they've ever had. He worked with uh, Bugliosi on the Manson murders, uh, and uh, just was a top-notch guy who I totally respected. We met in secret. I gave him all of my files and exhibits and said, here's the evidence. Take a look. So he did for a couple of months, got back to me and said, you know, unbelievable. He said, you know, were your father still alive, I would file at least two counts of murder on him. One for the Black Dahlia murder, Elizabeth Short, in 1947. And then the second one for a murder that actually occurred three weeks afterwards which was a, a, a woman by the name of Jean French, which is known as the Red Lipstick Murder, uh, where she was, you know, beaten to death, strangled, beaten to death, body posed on a vacant lot, just like Elizabeth Short's, three weeks afterwards, and the killer used lipstick and wrote a profanity on her body, uh, taunting the police. And actually, what I had discovered, as if it wasn't enough that Dad was connected to the Dahlia murder and the French, but what I discovered was there were a series of lone woman murders that occurred in the 40s, all in a very tight geographical area in L.A., from Hollywood to downtown to West Side. About nine murders. And um, basically, put I put each of them together in different ways and felt he was responsible for, for at least those nine, if not more. So... The DA uh, basically says, you know, I would file these two. At that point, I said, okay, I'll go public with this. And I wrote up my, and I wrote the book, and, and it came out in 03. And basically, uh, as you know, it, it, you know, gained a lot of publicity. It was, you know, it was featured on Dateline and, and 20, 48 Hours, and, and uh, they've done five or six different um our shows on my investigation over the years for the last uh, 14, 15 years now. So let's talk about Elizabeth Short, who she was, how she ended up in Los Angeles, and how she was eventually found. Sure. So Elizabeth Short was a a young woman, uh, 22 years old, who came out to Hollywood from Medford, Massachusetts. She was born in uh, Medford, Massachusetts, she was, it was wartime, uh, Second World War was in full swing, and um, she dropped out of high school and basically came out to L.A. to, to meet Lieutenant Wright. Basically, she wanted to fall in love uh, with a military man during the war and get married and live happily ever after. And uh, she came out to, to Los Angeles and was living, uh, oh, in Long Beach for a while. She was dating some servicemen down there. And then she came to Hollywood and uh, was was dating men and stuff and, and going to the uh, military, the USOs and stuff. And basically she uh, was kind of naive, 
young, naive, you know, 22 going on 14 maybe. Not at all ready for the shark-infested waters of Los Angeles and Hollywood. And um, she dated different guys and stuff. And then on the morning of January 15th, 1947, a woman was taking a stroller, taking her small child, daughter, to market. And uh, she's in an area called the Lamert Park area of Los Angeles, which is about five miles south of Hollywood. And she looks over and she sees this, what she thinks is a mannequin on the vacant lot in this neighborhood. And uh, then she looks closer and, and realizes that, no, it's, it's actually a, a body. So she goes quickly goes south to the first home, door knocks at nobody home. She goes to another home of a, a Dr. Walter Bailey and his wife, and she asks to use their phone. She calls the police, reports what she's seen. Police respond, and this begins what becomes L.A.'s most notorious murder of, of, of the century, and which is will become known as the Black Dahlia. Police get there. They're horrified with what they see, they see at, at the crime scene. There's a body, a woman's body, young woman. She's a Jane Doe, no identification. And uh, she, the body is carefully posed. It's, it's surgically bisected at the waist. Skillfully, there's no blood. Clearly, the crime didn't occur there. body has been washed clean. It's a horrendous sight. These are veteran seasoned homicide detectives there, and they're, they've never seen anything like it. Hands over the head are posed in a careful position, in a special position. The, the lower torso is juxtaposed just off the sidewalk, just below the upper torso. Signs of extended torture, cuttings to the body, ligature marks on the neck and the ankles and the feet. Uh, a hysterectomy has been performed uh, on the on the woman and um, cuttings. And then when they get to the coroner's office and they, they do the actual autopsy and protocol, they dis discover some horrendous things. She was actually forced to eat feces. She was, they found some of her private parts in her rectum and just on and on, this, this horrible, horrible murder, which is really what made it stand out from the others because of the extreme sadism involved in it. And, and they estimate that it probably was three or four hours of torture. And the one thing they were sure of, that this was a skilled surgeon, not some meat cutter or, you know, that the, whoever had this had to be a trained, skilled medical doctor or, you know, highly skilled in anatomy. She was a Jane Doe for just 24 hours, and, and then they sent her fingerprints back to the FBI, and they came back with a name and a positive ID. They learned her name was Elizabeth Short. She was 22 she had worked at a military base um, about 40 miles north of L.A., Camp Cook. Uh, she had worked at the PX there, the store, military store. And uh, with that, they, they located her parents back back in uh, Medford, and uh, her mother. And they learned her name was Elizabeth Short, and she was 22. And uh, they started backgrounding, checking her, and they discovered, uh, actually, the newspapers uh, were... Uh, vying for headlines. This actually became one of the most media, uh, it was a media, huge media coverage of 30 days above the fold on all five or six of the major newspapers here in LA at the time. 
uh, it was just before, you know, this was before, tele- just before television, so to speak, caught on, and it was kind of like the, the last major print story. And um, one of the reporters called a pharmacy that she was known to hang out, uh, a soda place in Long Beach, and uh, discovered that the military guys there called her the Black Dahlia. And that name came from a film that was out that previous summer called The Blue Dahlia, which was a noir murder mystery. And uh, she would come in there and, and stuff, and they just kind of named her the Black Dahlia. So you've got this this mysterious name, the Black Dahlia. You've got this beautiful young woman. You've got this horrible crime. And they all came together to make headlines. And um, it, it just spun on and, and remained uh, so for the next 30 60 days, uh, headlines, uh, not only locally, but across the nation. So that's kind of what started the investigation, and uh, it went from there. The police had a lot of suspects to talk to, a lot of leads to follow up on, because, as you've mentioned, she dated a lot of guys, seemed to be constantly going out on dates at various nightclubs and restaurants, staying in different hotels, staying with friends when she was short on cash, which seemed to be frequent. So there were plenty of people to sort through for the police. And in addition, as you've already said, the killer was sending out notes to taunt the police and the newspapers. It's just pure chaos. Now, the killer even calls the editor of one of the newspapers one night to chat with him one-on-one, doesn't he? That's right. The city editor uh, receives a phone call from the actual suspect, and uh, uh, the killer says, "You know, I understand you're having you hit a block, you know, a dead end. Uh, well, maybe I could help you out." And uh, city editor James Richardson was his name. Says, uh, "How so?" He says, "Well, how about if I send in a, some of her personal effects? Maybe that'll help you, and I'll send in a, uh, I'll send in a letter and her personal effects, and and maybe that'll." help you move forward on it. And the city editor's signals to his uh, secretary there to try and track the phone call. And um, (laughs) the killer says, I I think I'll hang up now. I'm sure you're going to try and uh, track my phone. And he hangs up. Well, within two or three days, the city editor, Richardson, gets this package. And it's her her purse. It's her uh, personal ID cards, social security cards, birth certificate, and some photographs from her purse, personal photographs of her with some other guys and stuff, with a note saying, here it is, uh, promised to mail this to you, and, and here are some of her personal belongings, and he signs at Black Dahlia Avenger. So Richardson, you know, he, he, he kept that secret. Nobody actually knew that the killer called in. He kept it until about seven years later when he wrote his memoirs, and he has a chapter on that in there, and he says, I'll never forget that soft, sly voice, he says, if he ever calls in again, but he never did. He thought he might call in again, but but the the killer never did call back. And uh, again, a lot of the taunting notes were cut and paste and stuff, and um, mailed to both the police and and the press. It, It was very active, I mean, you know, hugely active for the first six months or so of the investigation. Then it kind of uh, faded off, and uh, every, oh, every anniversary, like every five-year anniversary on January 15th, 
the newspapers would, you know, resurrect the crime and remains an unsolved and stuff. And, and then, of course, from there, they, a number of books were written, fictional books. Probably the most famous is Elroy's Black Dahlia, James Elroy's, which is totally fiction. It has nothing, very little to do with the crime itself, except he uses her name, Elizabeth Short, and the location. But other than that, it's, it's total fiction. It has nothing to do with a real story. But tragically, uh, over the decades, you know, there's so much myth arises from it, and uh, they turned her into a, a prostitute and a junkie and a, a dope fiend, and, and all of these, you know, terrible, the terrible stories were created by hack writers. In fact, I spent a whole chapter in the book, you know, re- rehabilitating her reputation because she wasn't a prostitute. She wasn't. She she barely drank. She mostly drank just soda, cokes, and. Uh, she was a bit of a tease. She'd, you know, date a guy and stuff, but, uh, but other than that, she, you know, none of the things that were ascribed to her in all of these very dark fictional books and, and, and in the films and stuff were, were true. One of the things that I, I do in, in the follow-up version is that there are a number of myths that I try and uh, demyth. One of the big things that still stands to this day to many people is her so-called missing week. Uh, supposedly from January 9th, uh, when she was brought up to Los Angeles and dropped at the Biltmore Hotel, which is downtown at 5th and Olive, supposedly there's a missing week uh, from the 9th until the body was found on the 15th of January. And you know, legend has it that she walked out the door of the Biltmore Hotel on the 9th and was never seen again, walked into the fog. Well, that's all totally totally untrue and I, I was able in my investigation to locate and actually put together 14 different witnesses uh, who saw her during that so-called missing week in Hollywood and downtown and seven of those 14 actually knew her personally so they couldn't have been mistaken so I was able to establish that uh, there was no missing week that that uh, actually the last person to see her was an LAPD policewoman downtown who talked to her had a conversation with her. What we do know is that Elizabeth Short, in the last uh, month or so of her life, began running. She was in fear of a man that was going to kill her. And she fled to uh, San Diego, spent quite a few weeks down there, and then came back. And this policewoman actually saw her on the 14th, the day before the body was found, coming out of a bar. Or she ran out of a bar and said, there's a man in there that's threatened to kill me. And the policewoman goes back in. The man's not there, but they get her purse and stuff, and she talks to her. I was actually able to locate that woman. You imagine 50, 50 years later. Wow. That, that retired, that was one of my most amazing, amazing interviews was with this actual policewoman who was the last to see her alive before the murder. And uh, there was no doubt in her mind. I mean, this, it's not like this might have been Elizabeth Short. This was Elizabeth Short. So that was one of the myths, was this missing week. Uh, the other, the second myth that came along was the department's position was, oh, it's a standalone murder, none before, none after, one of a kind, totally untrue. And, and uh, as I've, we've talked a little bit about the, the lone woman murders, there were at least nine that, that I'm absolutely considered definites. Two of those, of course, I mentioned that Kay said he would file. He liked the other ones, but he said there's not enough there to actually file. 
except on the two. Anyway, there was um, a bunch of these these murders that, uh, and and it wasn't like Steve O'Dell was just saying this. It was actually LAPD at the time back then was actively investigating these as related. They didn't they didn't have the term serial murder back then, but serial killer. But they but they they called them in that what was it? They, oh, they called them chain murders, and, and they were definitely. Uh, you know, they definitely had many of them, four or five of them connected. They even put out a, a, a in the newspaper, they printed a 11-point uh, paper on why they believed many of these were connected, listing 11 points of uh, why they believed uh, it was the same suspect. So, again, that was another myth that became, you know, was lost in, in over the decades. And uh, the other, and, and this uh, we can get into later perhaps, is, that the that LAPD never solved the crime, and of course they did solve the crime, and and that's a whole section in itself that we would discover after my book comes out. So normally, what was interesting about this case and in my investigation was that normally in all my other murders, you start with a kind of a clean plate, a tabula rasa, if you will, and you and you move forward. Well, with this, I had to, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff and. and figure out what was real and what wasn't because there was so much uh, myth and legend stacked upon it. I had to kind of clean the plate, so to speak, before I could move forward. So th- that added a unique twist to my my investigation, uh, which lasted, well, the first part of it lasted three years. So as the police investigation continues, a man suddenly steps forward, claiming to be the murderer of Elizabeth Short. The newspapers, of course, trumpet the confession in their headlines. You write in your book that this confession from this kid might actually have been the catalyst for the red lipstick murder, a murder that you already talked about, the victim, Jean French. Can, can you talk about that connection? Absolutely. So uh, January 15th of 47 was the uh, Black Dahlia murder and the body was found. And then um, three weeks later, uh, as I mentioned earlier, th- there was this body of Jean French that was found in West L.A., which was about five miles west of the Dahlia crime scene, in a, 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 almost in the same parallel spot, directly west by five miles. And uh, uh, the body was found on a vacant lot. It, it was nude, covered with uh, her clothing. She'd been, she wasn't surgically bisected, but she was, uh, had been, uh, strangled and, and beaten to death with a, probably a tire iron. And, uh, the obscenity was written in lipstick. It was F U black consigned B D for obviously Black Dahlia. And what had happened was there were a lot of confessing, what they were calling confessing Sams back then. People wanted their, 15 minutes of fame, and they would say, I killed Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. So they were running around trying uh, to, to, to interview and, and, and talk to these various false confessions. And then they got a, a guy in uh, a military base back east, uh, Private Dumas, uh, and he claimed he killed her. And the military police back there interviewed him, and he wrote out like, I don't know, 25-page confession, and uh, LAPD jumped on it, and um, it, as you say, it was it was six-inch headlines uh, in the newspaper. Uh, Dumas, 
Private Dumas confesses, or Corporal, I guess he was, Dumas, confesses to killing the Black Dahlia. And they had this lengthy confession, uh, all in print and stuff. It was huge and uh, case solved. And basically, two days after that appeared, and LAPD kind of uh, went along with it. And uh, what had happened was one of the mystery writers, well-known mystery writers of the day, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he wrote into the an article into the newspaper because they were asking different uh, experts on their opinions on the, the, the Dahlia murder. And uh, this one mystery writer uh, wrote in saying, you know, basically what I would do if, if I were uh, – the police, I would claim that we've got a confession from a, a man and uh, he's confessed to the crime. And he says, this would so enrage the real killer that he would turn himself in to, to give, it, give himself up because he didn't want someone else claiming his, his murder. Well, unbelievably, the, the newspapers actually, three days after this article, they did exactly that. They knew that this Dumas was not the true killer, because the uh, LAPD had established he was actually in his military base back east at the time of the murder. But they went ahead and printed this anyway, following this mystery writer's advice, thinking maybe the killer would turn himself in. So what does the killer do? Does he turn himself in? No. What he does is he commits a murder. And this is, the, this is in response to the so-called confession he writes on the body, F-U-B-D. And it's in response to their claiming, you know, rather than turning himself in, he just kills again to prove he, that they've got the wrong killer. So that was pretty shocking. And um, uh, the handwriting on the body, uh, we haven't talked a lot about the evidence, but, but one, of the, one of the things I did was I had a handwriting, a court-certified handwriting expert, analyze my father's handwriting against many of the Dahlia uh, mailings, and, and and along with this one on the body, which was very clearly printed in a very unique, again, my father's unique printing. Anyway, she came back with uh, hi highly probable that uh, George Hodell wrote the message on the body. And um, basically, this was his, his way of, of ta again, taunting the police by killing again. He would he would do it in other ways and other other forms later on, and then there's a whole bunch of other things that ties him to it. Uh, the car that was Gene French was last seen was identical to his 37 Packard black Packard. The description he was seen eating with her at a restaurant at uh, late around midnight that night before fit his description perfectly. On and on a whole bunch of reasons why. I just couldn't believe that he would that the newspapers would actually knowingly do this, and, and uh, in a way you could say they were indirectly responsible for the tragic murder of a of a woman just just because uh, they were following this crime writer's crazy idea of getting him to confess. So this episode today with Steve Hodell covers a good part of his first book, The Black Dahlia Avenger, although of course. There's a ton that we were not able to cover in this week's episode. So this interview will continue next week, and in it we talk about some of the evidence Steve has gathered that points to his father George as the killer of the Black Dahlia, and other murders as well, murders in other cities even, other countries. We discuss motive, too. So stay tuned. 
But my suggestion, if you want to continue to learn more about the murder and the investigation, is to sign up for a free audible.com trial at www.audibletrial.com slash mono. Mono, by the way, is short for most notorious. <laughs> M-O-N-O. It's not pronounced mono, <laughs> a disease that I, I do not have. You'll get a free audio book with your 30-day trial, and hallelujah, the Black Dahlia Avenger is available as that free audiobook. 20 listening hours worth of information about Steve Hodell's brilliant investigation, which should keep you busy until next week when we talk about some of the more recent evidence not covered in the first book. So there, I've helped fill your weekend, and you can feel good knowing you've helped me and my little one-man operation stay afloat. <laughs> And keep this podcast going strong. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. We'll continue this discussion with Steve Hodell next week on The Black Dahlia. And in the meantime, have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.